Mark 13, going to take a quick look at Mark 13, and I was going to suggest on the church email that you probably read that chapter, uh, because I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning. Um, it's an interesting chapter. Uh, sometimes it's referred to by uh, those in, how would I describe it, church world, described as the small apocalypse. So Daniel in the Old Testament and perhaps Revelation in the New Testament would be thought of as big apocalyptic writing. Um, and Mark 13 is kind of a small one-chapter conversation that Jesus has with his disciples about what is to come. And I think if you look at Daniel, which... I have never studied, but at some time probably should. If you look at Revelations, those two books are full of incredible imagery, symbols, beasts, numbers, all of which speak to that which is to come, but I think are often hard for us to fully comprehend. And perhaps that's why it was written that way. Mark 13 is a conversation about the end of this age, kind of written more in language that you and I might say, okay, I think I understand some of what Jesus is saying here about what's to come. In Luke, where there's a similar conversation uh, the Gospels are, record this. He talks about everything that's going to point, everything that may happen within our world. And he says, well, this is to show that the end is near. It's not to show that the end is all of a sudden here, but the end is near. And so Luke in his gospel often says to say, he says to us to straighten up in a sense, look up for your redemption, for your salvation draweth nigh. The synonyms for apocalypse all have what I would call a very ominous sense to them. Uh, words like annihilation, cataclysmic, catastrophic, devastation, Armageddon, decimation, there is nothing even remotely hopeful in any of those words. They all sound ominous. Within the church, we tend to talk about the end of this age from a Christian perspective, which only makes sense. That for the followers of Jesus Christ, unless and here is the warning, I think, that's built into Mark. Unless people get swept away by the things of this world, those things that are apocalyptic, those things that talk about the end of this age, are those things in the Christian's life that speak to ultimate victory, receiving the reward of perseverance of faith, and that it speaks to our glorious hope. And when we read apocalyptic writing, whether it's Mark, 
whether it's revelations, we need to read it from the conviction that God has already sorted out the beginning from the end. The resurrection of Jesus is our great hope. And one day, even so, Lord Jesus, come. And Luke would say, stand straight, look up, for your redemption draweth nigh. For the church, even if we have to live through difficult and perhaps even horrible times, which is part of what the conversation that Jesus has with the disciples in Mark 13 is, he tells them about things that are going to come in their lifetime, and they are horrific. But the church, through the cross and the resurrection, apocalyptic writing is about victory. Apocalyptic writing is about hope. Apocalyptic writing is about the assurance of what lies ahead for those who hang on to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is that the end of this age will impact everyone who calls this earth home. At this point, they say it's about seven and a half billion people. And I think you can make a case for it that North America at this time is absolutely fascinated by apocalyptic, that whole genre of writing, of movies, of shows. There's a staggering number of books and movies that have that theme. Many of these focus on an apocalyptic event itself. So it could be an environmental calamity, it could be a nuclear event, it could be a plague or a virus, an invasion, either human or alien, a cosmic event outside of Earth itself. And many of those movies and books also have what I would call a post-apocalyptic theme about what does it mean for those who may survive whatever this event may be? What does survival look like? Is survival even something to be hoped for? I think this genre plays on our fears and this sense of impending doom from which there is no escape, and at times I think people are fascinated by things they fear. The reality of evil is usually front and center in this genre, and there are some social scientists who would say that the uncertainty of our time actually fuels this interest in what is about to happen to the world in which we live. It was interesting, I'm not even quite sure how I got to what I got to, but I have it here. If you look up under Wikipedia, apocalyptic movies, and then it had it listed by decade. And so prior to 1950, there were, it said, four movies that you might call had an apocalyptic theme. Now, I understand that pre-1950 was not exactly the golden age of movies. There weren't 
an awful lot of movies produced during that time, but apparently four of them had an apocalyptic theme. From 1950 to 1959, there were 12. Now, you can go, if you're curious about it, I wonder what these movies were, you can go and check it out. 1960 to 1969, there were 23, so it doubled. And then it was interesting. From 70 to 79, from 80 to 89, from 1990 to, 1995, to 1999, in each of those decades, they identified 35 Movies with an apocalyptic theme. Movies that spoke about the end of this age, the end of this world as we know it. And then you go to 2000 and 2009, and the number jumps from 35 to 63. And from 2010 to 2019, which we haven't completed yet, there's already 69. So there's a fascination, for whatever reason, with this idea of the end of this world as we know it. Even if you rationalize all this and say, well, Doug, that's just simply a form of escape. It's entertainment. It, it still, I believe, taps into what for many people is a very real fear. Fear about what lies ahead for the human population. On a global scale, there are so many things, I think, that seem so uncertain. That stability of nations, stability of entire regions within our earth, seems fragile at best. In countries where democracy was once a proud banner to be waved, in one election... A ruler can change the course of a country. It's true in the Philippines. It's true in Turkey. If you look at what's happening in Turkey, it's true in Venezuela. And you could probably point to countless other countries where seemingly countries that used to embrace the democratic process are moving to something that's different. We live in a world where knowledge is increasing. We're living in a world where science and technology continues to impact our lives. And yet more than ever, we live in a world where it's increasingly difficult to determine fact from fiction, truth from lies. You would think that it should be the opposite. And at times, I think the vision of a world that is going to gradually become a very good, a very much better place seems increasingly out of reach. In an article written by a fellow named Joshua Kralanzik, it was called The Great Democracy Meltdown. He wrote this, and this was in 2011. He said, 20 or even 10 years ago, the possibility of a global democratic recession, not economic, democratic recession, seemed impossible. It was widely assumed that as states grew wealthier, they would develop larger middle classes. And these middle classes, according to democracy theorists like Samuel Huntington, would push for even greater social, political, and economic freedoms. Human progress 
which constantly marched forward, I would say big question mark, would spread democracy everywhere. And for a time, this rosy line of thinking seemed warranted. In 1990, dictators still ruled most of Africa, Eastern Europe, and Asia. By 2005, democracy had, democracies had emerged across these continents, and some of the most powerful developing nations, including South Africa and Brazil, had become solid democracies. And in 2005, for the first time in history, more than half of the world's people lived under democratic systems. And then he goes on to say, and then something odd and unexpected began to happen. It started when some of the leaders who had emerged in these countries seemed to morph into elected autocrats once they got into office. In many regions across our world, I would say democracy, you might say, seems to have been stalled. That it has begun to fail the very people it was supposed to champion. So it's no longer of the people, for the people, and by the people. So people are willing to give something else or someone else a try, even if there's risk involved. Jesus warned in Mark 13 about other messiahs. He said, don't be deceived by other messiahs. I think there is a hope an almost willingness within our world for peoples to have a small M messianic hope that somebody will help keep this world on course. I think the Bible would say this world is on a course, the end of which is destruction. And the people of God are on a course the end of which is life eternal. So stay alert, be on guard, watch, don't be deceived. For children of God, apocalyptic writing speaks to the glorious return of Jesus Christ. That we will share in the resurrection of Jesus that God said in a previous chapter, I am a God of the living, not of the dead. And so Jesus and Mark would say to the church, stand firm, straighten up, look up, because your salvation is at hand. Mark 13 has always been a source of debate amongst theologians, amongst biblical scholars, and I am neither one of those. It has also been a source of great debate and interest amongst people who love to think about and talk about prophetic things and people who love to speculate on what is to happen. And I think we need to read Mark 13 through the lens of the past, through the lens of the present that Jesus has something to say to us in 2017 about the imminent return of Jesus Christ, and it speaks about the future. 
that we must read and process this chapter with the absolute conviction that the sovereign God who ordained that the cross would be followed by the resurrection is the same God who knows the beginning from the end. In Revelations, he says he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and he is the last. He is the beginning and he knows the end. The purpose of Mark 13 is not to help us predict the time or the day. Uh, it is written so clearly in Mark 13 that predicting the time and the day is actually what Jesus tells us not to worry about. And yet the church, I think especially in a couple of decades, maybe it was the 60s and 70s, and I was in Bible school for a couple of those years, an awful lot of people went to an awful lot of work to say, well, this ruler, that he is the person that is referred to in Revelations here. And so you began to have people match the symbols, the imagery in Revelations or Daniel with current world leaders. All of whom have either died or gone their way and Jesus has still not returned. So the purpose of us reading Mark 13 is not to try to help us predict. Our task is not to try and match uh, apocalyptic symbols and imagery with current day events or current day rulers. Our challenge is not to try and crack the code of these highly symbolic writings that somehow if we could hack into exactly what revelations mean, we would be able to say, aha, this is what it means, this is what will occur. In fact, I would suggest that the symbols, the imagery, the numbers, the beasts, evident in apocalyptic writing, refer to things that are only known to God himself. Mark 13, verse 32 says this, but that day, and he's not talking, he's talking to the disciples about a few things that are going to happen in their lifetime. But then he says, but in that day, when Jesus shall return, no one knows of that day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only God himself. Don't worry about trying to figure it out. Spend time examining your life in terms of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for you, how you live? I'm going to use the phrase, rest assured. Rest assured sometimes is used as a warning. So I'm going to say, rest assured, Doug, somebody's going to find out what you just did. And so there is both in Mark 13, I think, the sense of rest assured, there's a warning that this troubled and conflicted and disillusioned world is not going to last forever. But there's also rest assured, which are words of comfort. Rest assured that God is sovereign over all of this, 
that God is with us, that God is for us, that we are his children, and in and through Jesus, we will inherit the reward of perseverance. So the message of Mark 13 is to give thought to how you live. The message of Mark 13 is to persevere, to be alert, to be on guard, Don't be deceived by human speculation. Don't be deceived by other messiahs. Yes, there very well may be suffering and persecution. Yes, there may be events in the heavens and on earth that may seem to have an apocalyptic sense to them. When you see these things happen, stand firm, look up, for your redemption draweth nigh. Dan Doriani of the Gospel Coalition wrote this and it's such simple language about how we talk about things that may happen in the future. And he said this, when Jesus gives instruction concerning future events, his purpose is not to satiate our curiosity or answer all of our speculative questions. Instead, his purpose is to protect and guide and instruct his people. Jesus gave relatively little attention to the question when and much toward the question, how shall I live faithfully as a child of God? He says, preaching on such texts today should be shaped by Jesus' concern for the welfare and for the endurance of the church. Clearly, some of the events highlighted in Mark 13 unfolded in the lifetime of the disciples. The time period from about 66 to 70 AD was a horrific time for many people, not just Christians. Chris Wien said he had a book this thick on what that time in history looked like, and it was horrendous. And I said, Chris, if the book is that thick, I'm likely not going to read it. But if you look at what life was like during that time, certainly for those who were followers of Jesus, but for others as well, it was a horrible time. The physical temple was destroyed and violated. People within Jerusalem turned on each other in brutal ways. There was famine. This city of refuge became a snare that if you got in, you couldn't get out. There was both civil unrest and there were Roman armies at the door. And instead of running to the temple, Jesus said, in those times, in those days, run for the hills. He says, hopefully, that won't happen in winter. He talks about very real physical safety-related concerns for the people of God. If Jesus were to address the church today about things to come, it could very well be that he might choose different illustrations within the context of the time in which we live, but I believe Jesus would give us the same warnings about how we live and the same encouragement 
about the hope that lies within those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. Throughout history, going back to the Old Testament, there have been times when the people of God have chosen to flee, to run. Throughout history, there have been times of great persecution. It's very likely that within families, within this congregation, people could point in their family history to times of great persecution, where people chose to run and flee for the sake of their faith. Throughout history, there have been events that could only be described as apocalyptic in nature. As I was thinking about this this week, I thought you could ask Syrian Christians, those Christians who found themselves trapped in the city of Aleppo. This was especially towards the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017. Surrounded by warring factions. Unable to escape the city. Starvation. People literally eating cats and dogs within the city of Aleppo to try to stay alive. People, Christians, targeted because they were children of God. People who would have read Mark 13 and thought, Jesus, you are talking about what is happening to us right now. Comparatively speaking, North America, we are so sheltered. As a nation, and even as Christians, we have not been asked to suffer for our faith in the way that many other of our brothers and sisters have. Our lives unfold in relative peace and prosperity, for which we should give thanks. Last night, I was, I was watching Toronto Blue Jays play Seattle Mariners. could talk about that for a while, but it has nothing to do with the sermon. And I flicked to the History Channel. And on the History Channel, there was a show called, and I'll probably get this wrong, I think it was called Aftermath. Life after humans disappear. And I generally stay clear of those kind of movies, those kind of shows. But occasionally I would flick back, partly because I was talking about things with an apocalyptic theme, and I thought, you know, maybe I need to think about this a bit. So I would go back to the Seattle Mariners, Toronto Blue Jays game, and you have this party atmosphere. People enjoying themselves, people laughing, people eating, people drinking in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. And then I would flick to the History Channel, and you see this ominous picture of the end of this age as we know it. And I thought our human experience somehow is able to go to both of those places. We understand sort of that part of life which is truly simply to be enjoyed, and yet there's part of us that understands that everything we know it could in a moment disappear. Perhaps our warning for us in North America 
as I thought about sort of the party atmosphere at Safeco Field. Perhaps our, more, our warning is more in line with what Paul had to say to Timothy in Timothy 3, verses 1 to 4. And I want to apologize that none of this is on the screen. Um, I'll just apologize that it's not up there. And Paul says this to Timothy. He said, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. But what interests me about this conversation that Paul has with Timothy, he doesn't reference famines, he doesn't reference wars, he doesn't reference earthquakes. He said, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. And I thought, this is Paul writing to Timothy within the context of Timothy speaking to his church. And Paul prefaces this by saying, in the last days, that the difficulty maybe that we face in North America has far more to do with our affluence and our wealth and our comfort and our pleasure than it does with other things. So I believe God asks us to examine ourselves and how we live. And I want to end with Mark 13, though. This is a part of the last part of, of that chapter. Mark 13, verses 32 to 37. I think we need to just absolutely believe this is the word of God. This is true. This speaks into our hearts and minds. He says, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. No one, not even the most highly trained theologian or study of prophetic writing. Nobody knows when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the son himself, only the father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. And when he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You, too, must keep watch. For you don't know when the master of the household will return in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, at daybreak, in the middle of a baseball game. We do not know. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone. Watch for him. I was glad you sang the song Cornerstone. Um, I've been singing that song this week, uh, mostly just this one line. When he shall come with trumpet sound, 
Oh, may I then in him be found. It's a message of Mark 13. That you would be able to say, for me, in my life, I want to be found in Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I'm going to be dressed in his righteousness alone. What a sweet phrase. Faultless to stand before the throne of God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up, and I just want to pray. Heavenly Father, um, we confess that we know so little. But Father, we bow down before you as King of kings and Lord of lords, the sovereign God of heaven and earth, creator of all things. And Father, we bow down to you and thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, sacrificed on our behalf in order that we might live life eternal. Father, in the busyness of our lives, that you have placed us here in this place, in this region, in this country. Uh, Father, help us to stay alert, to watch, and to guard our hearts and minds, I pray. And then may we truly say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And may you find us ready, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.